It was late February in 2009. Then 22-year-old Dorian Dillard faced a sentencing hearing after pleading guilty to murdering two men on the streets of St. Petersburg, Florida two years prior. During that hearing, Dorian apologized to the families of the men who'd lost their lives. He also apologized to his own family. I just want to say I'd like to express my deepest condolences, he said to them. Despite those apologies, Dorian couldn't offer the families an explanation for why he had decided to end the lives of those two men. I wish there was something I can tell you, he said. I'm sorry to each and every one of you. But before the judge handed down the sentence, something remarkable happened. The brother of one of the victims, George Castrinos, took the stand to address the defendant. Here's the audio. You might need to temporarily turn up your volume because it's a little bit difficult to hear. Since you know, January 17th, my whole life has changed, and, and uh, I started to have a shift before that in my awareness. You know, and I'm reading this book right now. I've read a lot of books. This book I'm reading is called Course in Miracles. And it, the main object of that book is atonement and, and forgiveness. And, you know, most people just want to feel good. They just want to sleep in peace and wake in joy. And for a long time, it wasn't like that for me. But since the death of my brother, I've kind of come into my own personal spiritual alignment. And it's almost like anything that hasn't served me has just kind of dropped. Almost like as a dog comes out of the water and just shakes it off. So, Dorian, I want you to know that I want good things for you. You know, I don't want you to die in the death sentence. You know, and you're up here pleading guilty, I mean, and I still don't really know totally that you pulled the trigger on my brother, right? It doesn't really matter right now. I just want, you, know, you can go, to, you're going to go to prison, and, and there's beauty in there if you look for it. There's beauty right here in this courtroom right now. And, you know, these, these words of revenge and regret, and it's like, because of this, I can come from atonement and forgiveness stand right here before you today, right before you guys, and tell you, I'll forgive you. That David Peace, little brother, forgives you. And I want you to know that. Regardless if you did this or not, and it sure looks like you did this crime, it's between you and your maker. So wherever you're going, just remember, David Peace, little brother, forgives you. And that's your mother over there, I want good things for that woman. Your family that was here earlier, I want good things for, I want good things for everybody in this courtroom. And I know if my brother was here right now, he would be cool with it. I know he would. I know I know David would be cool with it. Maybe one day you can tell me how it went down or whatever, you know, if you if it's alright with you guys, I'll send you a book in jail or a letter or whatever, you know. We'll just see how things go. Okay. As I listen to George speak, a lot of thoughts cross my mind. But the primary question I have is, could I find it in myself to forgive someone who ended the life of a loved one? I put the same question to you, the listener. Would you be able to look into the eyes of a person who killed someone you love and say, I forgive you? It's a tough question to answer and hopefully one that none of us ever has to consider. The reason I included this in today's podcast is because it gets to the heart of what my guest writes about in his book, Cultivating Empathy. The author of that book, Nathan C. Walker, believes that every single person is deserving of dignity and empathy, even those who have caused us irreparable harm. 
He thinks that if we use our moral imagination, which is described as the ability to anticipate or project oneself into the middle of a moral dilemma or conflict and understand all points of view, that we can find greater peace and contentment in this world. This doesn't mean that we have to agree with someone else, he writes in his book. It just means that we can use our imaginations to understand that things aren't always what they appear to be on the outside. In his book, Nathan, a Unitarian Universalist minister and executive director for the Religious Freedom Center of the Museum Institute in Washington, D.C., recounts several firsthand experiences in which he wrestles with the concepts of empathy and moral imagination. He shares his own interactions with privileged one-percenters, skinheads, murderers, homophobic preachers, and Monsanto executives, and how each of them taught him lessons about the importance of empathy. And perhaps you might agree, I think we can all benefit from his stories now more than ever. My name is Ryan Halverson, and this is The Book Builders on Books and Authors. education. So I teach the public about the religious freedom principles within the First Amendment um, to help people negotiate all kinds of differences. Um, it's, a, it's a very polemic time to be able to do religious liberty work. And I think we have an approach for civic education that kind of tones down the crazy. <laughs> this is Nathan. The First Amendment has both the Free Exercise Clause and the Non-Establishment Clause that make clear that um, people of all religions and people who don't affiliate with any are all protected equally. And so it's in that context that we do common ground work where we have civil dialogue with civil and religious liberty groups who are um, advocating and often litigating each other and we convene them to have conversations about all these different topics, right, from um, the Hobby Lobby and corporations to contraception to abortion to same-sex marriage. And we bring them here to dialogue with each other. We equip them with skills on dialogue, and we engage in common ground statements to be able to articulate different ways that people can move forward on what seems like intractable issues. So we've done that um, with with public schools um, and many other many other options. I had the great privilege and honor of speaking with Nathan for more than an hour and a half. We spent a great deal of that time talking about his book and the stories he shares in it, which is the focus of today's podcast. But we also covered other topics like the complex nature of religion in today's society, the media and its role in those complex issues technology and how it feeds into our ability to demonize others with minimal repercussion, self-righteousness, and so much more that I couldn't possibly include in a single 30-minute episode. And I certainly didn't want to keep those thoughtful insights to myself, so I've decided to put together a part two to this episode that will be available in the coming weeks, so keep an eye out for it. All right, back to the story. Here's Nathan describing his inspiration for writing this book. Well, I think it was because I had these series of, of experiences and encounters and conflicts. So one of them was when I met my biological father for the first time when I was 20 years old. And upon meeting him, I realized that I had romanticized him into the point of being a god. Meaning it was to him I was praying to and having internal conversations with my entire life. And upon meeting him, I had an absence of those conversations. I had a, a death of that God. 
I realized that he was just a man, not, not anything more than that. And in your romanticized uh, view of your dad as God, the image that you had in your head was of Robert Redford. Where did that come from? Oh, I think it was my mom would reference me as a as a natural when I was a kid, meaning like when I was playing sports or dance or when I was doing theater or something, and it it just implanted in this image Robert Redford in the movie The Natural. And because I was blonde and I, I assumed he, my, my biological father was too, just sort of the movie star in the sky type of image. <laughs> and then when you actually got the opportunity to meet your biological father, that wasn't the image that presented itself. <laughs> right. I mean, he was just a guy. He was, um, I mean, very kind and very loving toward me and, um, uh, he was living in Germany, um, where I was born, and finding him, meeting him, and um, hearing his sort of American um, kind of hippie surfer type of language um, was not what I expected. Um, I, I, it just was a reality check, and ultimately, it was very, very, it changed my whole life meeting him. You describe this experience as a death of a god. What do you mean by that? I think by meeting him and seeing that he was a a man and not the image that I had made him out to be in a kind of very Freudian type of way, it, it set me into a trajectory of inquiry into figuring out how did I romanticize him? How did I make him not to be human? And I began to study otherizing, how we can dehumanize people either by making them out to be gods and infallible or to dehumanize them in other kinds of demeaning ways. Like um, I, I just think of how people have colonized different people, how they've vaporized them, how they've eliminated them from the room when they're sitting right in front of them. So it set me into a lifelong inquiry into otherizing, how we make people to be inhuman, either in the positive or negative sense. So you believe that when you otherize another human being, as you've done with your dad, then you create a barrier to connecting with them. And that barrier can quite possibly lead to a lot of the things like we're seeing these days where people become embroiled in conflict with others because they're not able to recognize that another person's viewpoint, while different, is valid. Which then, you know, a large part of your work and also part of the reason that you wrote this book was to uh, create an environment that opposes otherization, right? Yeah, I think I've, I've found a great deal of purpose in um, helping groups make meaning with each other and, and seek greater understanding, aware that understanding doesn't imply agreement. And so it's in that way that um, I've kind of come to use the moral imagination as an everyday practice to help me do that and help others do it. Moral imagination being that that emotional and competency that one develops when they're able to see a conflict through another person's eyes, especially with the person with whom they're in conflict. And 
should be able to do that work to have that ethical empathy for another, especially in times of conflict, is is I think a, a missing civic competency in order to navigate all these complex issues in our society. Along those lines, you've had some experiences in which you've met with organizations and individuals that are sort of shrouded in negative stereotypes. And the two that come to mind are the leader of a punk band who happens to be a skinhead. And you also met with executives from Monsanto. And both are part of very polarizing groups. So I'm curious about what you got out of meeting with these individuals who represent what many would consider to be evil or terrible organizations. Well, with the, with the skinhead, um, the scenario there is that our our congregation in Philadelphia, where I was a senior minister for seven years, was the the one of the top venues for punk rock punk rock concerts in the country, according to Rolling Stones magazine. So we had this really interesting community where it's a um, it's a longstanding Unitarian Unitarian congregation that was established in 1796, and yet it um, is in this historic part of Philadelphia, and it's hosting punk rock concerts. We did that for, we've done that, um, when I met this skinhead, it was for 10 years that we had been doing, we had been hosting these punk rock concerts. And so this was sort of in our house, in our setting, where we learned that this one punk band was going to come and... Um, play music that had xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, um, racist kind of lyrics and comments, and that it would attract skinheads to come and visit. And so I was advised by many different people to shut it down and to, and to do that. But instead, I was trying to lean in to learn more. And so I invited, um, I had a conversation with the punk band, but I had a conversation with the skinhead to figure, to learn more. And I think in that learning, um, it diffused the conflict and um, ultimately led the concert to be canceled and to led all the parties to kind of to go back back to their their domains. But the specific encounter with the skinhead was transformative to me because he was I was learning the different nuances of his beliefs. And he even opened up a chat room in, on on his computer where he was showing me the, the, the variety of beliefs within this white power group and how they're not violent, but they yes, they are pro-white nationalists, and, but that several of them were in interracial relationships and some of them were immigrants themselves. And so there's a lot of different complexity, but myself being in his presence was really fascinating to me as someone who is gay, who is in an interracial relationship with an immigrant. It was a very important moment in my life to have this conversation. And um, it did not change my views or possibly even his own, but it was an encounter unlike any other I've had because it wasn't shouting or shutting down. It was leaning in and listening and 
and I could seek to understand him, but I certainly didn't agree with him. I'd also like to point out that it seems that he had a similar reaction to the experiences you had. And in your book, you state that he said, thank you for not making me out to be a monster. And that was followed by a handshake and a hug. This easily could have been an experience in which the conflict was escalated, but instead the approach that you took was to seek to understand, to ask questions and to connect with this individual on a human level. And I think that goes to the point of what you mean by cultivating empathy is that you can have interactions with people who you disagree with, but you can still treat them like people. And in doing so can turn what could possibly be a potentially negative situation into a positive one. And I use the phrase almost always because your experience with Monsanto uh, went a little bit differently. Yeah, this was a, a, a great exercise. Um, at the denominational level, delegates from members of congregations from, from throughout the association voted to make ethical eating one of their, their study action items. And so after that, I came to the congregation and started to do a religious education program for adults on the ethics of eating. And out of that came a lot of conversations about genetically modified foods and um, specifically Monsanto, DuPont, Sagenta, and others' role in environmental contamination and in all these different ethical issues. And so those intimate conversations led me to do a sermon in which I, I wrote as a public letter to the CEO of Monsanto, asking him seven moral questions about his company and about his practices, um, his relationship with, with creation, with farmers, with scientists, with, the, with academia, with the media, with the government. And they were very pointed, intense um, questions that I wanted a public response to. And so I saw my role as, I want answers to these. Here, here are my questions. I'm engaging in this public debate. Join us. And to my delight, he, he responded. Um, we had some conversations over the phone and um, over letters and uh, with his executive team. And they eventually invited me and some trustees of the church to St. Louis. We paid our own way. We came for what started as a two-hour meeting on these topics with a brief tour after to a four-day conversation where we spent deep, rich, quality time with 14 executives with touring the facilities, engaging in these conversations. He went to the shareholder meeting, was able to um, meet with members of the board of trustees, including the COO, the chief operating officer for McDonald's, who was on Monsanto's board. So by engaging in the, the social justice um, strategy of dialogue, it gave us access to these people. And by gaining access, we were able to have our questions be heard and be able to hear the nuances of the responses rather than just, you know, press releases back and forth from organizations. 
And um, that those relationships resulted in executives from Monsanto coming to Philadelphia to visit members of our congregation, where we continued that conversation uh, on our on our home turf. And I think that was um, a kind of diplomatic um, social justice strategy that often you don't see in in the social justice world. It's often storm the castle and take over by any means necessary. And I wanted to try a different approach and to model for the congregation in a different way. And it was really interesting and hard. And the backlash from that was uh, members of the congregation and um, members of the larger association and other social justice leaders who are not associated were outraged that I would even give them the time of day. Um, I received a, a unmarked letter um, postmarked from New Hampshire with an image of a of a beast. Uh, it was a sketch of a, of a face of a beast with horns and fangs and blood dripping down and tattooed on its forehead was Monsanto. And then a stick figure was coming out of the tongue of the beast and were going in, I'm not sure which way, but it, on it it said Reverend Nate. And so just the fact that we were sitting down to have that conversation was offensive to others. And um, I think that that is a form of liberal fundamentalism that is just as scary and as threatening as any kind of conservative religious right extremism. Um, and so I don't want to live in those extremes. I want to find another another way of living. And, and the moral imagination as an everyday practice is giving me the tools to, to have those dialogues. How did you feel when you opened the envelope and found that sketch? Um, frankly, I was scared. Um, because this was a series of this came at a time where there was a series of kind of threatening behavior from a, a visitor at the congregation who was engaging in um, stalking behavior and um, some others who were kind of sexualizing uh, me and um, and engaging in aggressive uh, kind of physical threats. And so, you know, being being a public figure, you get a range of responses from people. And so when I opened that letter, I was worried. I was, I felt scared. And so I just, I, I gave it to the FBI and I've been working with them. I'd been working with the, the, the skinheads um, before that. And so I had these relationships with officials that, that I felt um, should know about these things. I remember that when I was first reading your book, one of my most prominent thoughts was that you seem to court controversy. However, when I finished the book and I gave it some space and some time to consider it, my opinion about that changed. From my perspective now, it's not necessarily that you court controversy, but maybe that you have what some might see as a controversial leadership approach because you quite often interact with polarizing individuals and groups with the intention of better understanding them instead of blindly taking a hard stance against them. And as is evidenced by the experiences with the skinhead punk group and the uh, executives from Monsanto, you received a significant backlash from your own community as a result. 
Why do you think people are so critical of this approach? I, I really value how you framed it. Um, I do actively court conflict because um, I've often seen that as a as necessary for change. Um, you know, one of my theories of social change is that conflict creates an opportunity for um, a, a breaking open of of things, of stereotypes, of of um, disillusionment, and it kind of pushes things forward, right? Like, you know, the judicial system is based on this, right? You have a trial, and then there's a result, and then it's over. But you need that controversy and that conflict in order to to break open um, and to bring more oxygen to the to the scenario. So um, I do actively in my leadership um, find conflict as a as a tool for social change. It has also come to me when I wasn't looking for it, and it wasn't on my terms. Um, not only because people might disapprove of my approach um, uh, of in the positive way of the moral imagination, but they also might uh, see me completely fail and be become what I set out against and call me out on that and say, what are you doing? Look at yourself. You're a hypocrite. You're a contradiction. You're... And in those ways, I think um, others uh, bring the mirror and to me and and that's it's humbling and hard and and true and important for my own growth for my own change well this seems like the perfect time to bring up one such scenario in which you consider yourself to have failed and in fact expressed the exact opposite approach to empathy i'll set the scene for what you describe as meeting the one percent so you and your partner were attending a lecture on religion at new york university it was open seating, and so you arrived early to secure a good spot. At some point before the lecture began, your partner went to the restroom and left his jacket to save a seat. And then shortly thereafter, an older woman, this one percenter in question, removed the jacket and took the seat. You protested repeatedly, and she continued to ignore you. And eventually the situation escalated to the point where you began taking pictures of her on your phone and threatened to post them on social media to shame her. Why did this woman get you so riled up? Well, in that moment, I became a victim to my own judgmental mind and ultimately became enraged. I felt justified to humiliate this woman because I saw an, her being unjust. Um, when, when she took my partner's seat and then um, put his coat on the ground and after me explaining that um, he'd be right back, he's in the bathroom, he's here, that was, I found it to be irrational. And her stoicism and um, uh, her stoic reaction infuriated me because I wasn't getting any communication back. And so I escalated my communication to the point of taking her picture. I said, I stood up and said, are you famous? If not, let me help you be. And I started taking her picture on my phone and said, I think the public should know how you're behaving in the public square. And um, I was mortified that I was treating her that way. I ultimately left and 
uh, found another seat, as did my partner. But um, what did not happen there is there was no conflict that was resolved. I'm not sure if there could have been. I found out she she said that she was a, a she sponsored this event, so she felt like it was her house, and I had felt like it was my seat because I had been there an hour and a half. But in the end, this is one of those rapid conflicts where everything is happening so fast and I would behave that way and then there's sort of the aftermath. For me, the aftermath was important because that happened on a Tuesday, but on Sunday I had just given this whole sermon to the congregation about (laughs) being kind and empathetic and all these lovely things and then a few days later I completely blew it like that. And so for me, the... um, My ultimate learning came from coming back to the congregation the next Sunday, explaining what happened, and then taking them through my experience and kind of working it out. Um, And ultimately, it was through that process. I remember the congregation said, why do you still have the photo? Okay, you decided not to post it anywhere, and you didn't share it in in the media like you threatened that you would. But why do you still hold on to it? And I realized that it was probably to gloat or to some kind of thing. So I I learned in that Sunday sermon, I deleted the photo from my phone for not only my own well-being, but for as a metaphor for the congregation to not hold on to the righteous impulse, to not always be the hero of our own stories, to say, oh, yeah, I gave it to her. I did it right. And I got all these points for being righteous and just and da 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 and I told her if that becomes a narrative for all of our conflicts then everyone's the hero to their own story and there's no resolve and so I I found I treated the, the congregation as a mirror and then turned that mirror to the congregation for them to reflect upon their lives and I think ultimately that exchange was the most helpful and transformative and that's why I open up the book with that story because I want people to know that in that for me cultivating empathy is not a given it's not a natural state of being for me it's it's hard it's a training that I have to do every single day I don't think it's you know as a kid as a teenager I thought myself to be kind. I thought I was raised to be kind. But I think adulthood and, you know, betrayals in life and breaches of trust and and threats and conflicts made me realize that I'm not so kind. And looking in that mirror is terrifying. So I came to see that the image of myself was not something that was going to be constant over time it was going to be something different every time I looked into it. And the practice of the moral imagination of cultivating empathy is not a constant. It was a a challenge for me to live into each moment. And the irony of, of this is that of all the episodes, the entire book happens chronologically except for the first chapter. That first chapter, my encounter with the woman in pearls the one percenter, as I deemed her, was the last thing to happen. 
So I had many positive examples of moral empathy, moral imagination with the skinhead in Montana and others. And yet, after all that, those years of training with that practice, you know, I had that epic role change where I'm the, the person humiliating another. I'm the person de demonizing her and creating her to be the other. So <laughs> it was a, uh, these are grand challenges for, for my character. And that's our show. A huge thanks to Nathan Walker for joining me today and for sharing some of his amazing life experiences with us. His book, Cultivating Empathy, The Worth and Dignity of Every Person Without Exception, is available on Amazon. I honestly cannot recommend this book enough. And remember that part two of my conversation with him will follow in the coming weeks. We talk about religion, self-righteousness, and our increasingly defensive society, technology, the dark side of theology, and more. You don't want to miss it. And sincerest thanks to you as well for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If anything that we've covered has resonated with you, then it's likely that it might resonate with somebody else, so please do share. This has been the Book Builders on Books and Authors, and I'm Ryan Halverson. Mm -hmm.